0: Good morning, High Point. Um, We'll enter our time of scripture reading. Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 2. We'll be reading from verses 15 to the end. This can be found on page 3 of your pew Bible. In Genesis chapter 2 from verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. The sword of the Lord written for his people.
1: Gibson. I'm Pastor Nick's younger brother. I'm going to be preaching today. Um, I realized when I was writing the sermon, I didn't have any good jokes, so I just shaved all my facial hair off. It's the first time in 20 years I've been able to feel air currents around my chin. Um, You'll notice that Pastor Devin's wearing a mask today, so that you have one pastor wearing a mask in solidarity with you if you're wearing them, one who isn't. I told him that I would tell all of you that he's not a communist, and he said to me, and I'll tell everybody you're not a white nationalist and so (laughs) that's all apocryphal by the way that's just just for a joke Um, hopefully we we can all be mature enough to love each other okay so um, next week Michael Matheson Miller a special guest speaker is going to be here I'm really excited about this I'm planning to learn a lot from him myself Um, there's two times when you can hear from him the first main one is going to be Saturday morning from 9 to 12 there's going to be because this is a grant we got grant money for this. There's going to be a lot of good food at this, okay? So that's the, that's the real difference. Um, so come to it. He's going to be talking about um, what it means to be a human being relative to what we owe each other in justice and how that relates to a Christian view of government. Uh, we, I don't, can't remember the last time we've done a seminar like that here at High Point. I think it's a really important topic, and he, uh, I really trust him to do it. So um, please come to that. And then he'll preach on Sunday morning about what constitutes the human person relative to the faculties we share with God and His communicable attributes, so that'd be a great sermon, I think, in the next one in this series that we need to hear. And then Sunday afternoon after he preaches, he'll do a Q&A kind of luncheon thing. And so if you've been to the seminar, or if you're, you volunteer in any way at High Point Church, you're invited to that Sunday afternoon thing. So if, you, if you, don't, you don't volunteer in anything, but you come to the seminar on Saturday, then come and you can be part of the Q&A. Or if you volunteer in anything, and you have questions relative to like what you're teaching people at High Point about what it means to be in the image, image of God, we want to have it for, for those folks, okay? You have to put in a little work to go to that one. All right, you guys ready to roll on this? Okay, um, I would need to review a little bit from last week because this is a continuation of last week's sermon. So part of the issue we have right now in human um, life in, the, in America and in the West and in the world is we're forgetting what it means to be a human being, to be an embodied person. And I talked a little bit about that last week, and I said that to be in the image of God, in reference to our being, means to be in the likeness of God and therefore to represent his presence. And what it means to bear the image of God is therefore then to bring God's dominion as to creation as embodied person. So so to be, to bear the image of God means to bring God's dominion into his creation, but to do it as an embodied person, right? Not thinking that we're God, because we're not, right? Now, I'm just going to review the first one, and then we're going to look at those other things. So the first is to be made in God's image is to embody his likeness in creation, and therefore to represent or demonstrate his presence, okay? And so last week I said there's four different illustrations of this, this in Scripture. There is—we're not supposed to make idols because idols are a representation of the presence of a God who doesn't exist, but we are the representation of the presence of the God that does exist, right? So we're not supposed to make idols of anything. Also, like, the likeness that is like a statue a king would make to demonstrate his reign over an area, his dominion, or, or the image of Caesar in a coin. Jesus used that as an example of the image or inscription. And then par excellence, the one that comes earliest in Scripture, that is in chapter 5, but then also becomes the the main focus of the New Testament picture for this is sonship, or being a a child, a son and daughter of God, right? It's not just a reference to love, that we're God's sons and daughters if we're in Christ, and so he loves us. That's not what it means. Mainly, it does mean that. We're his beloved children, but we're his children. That that means the assumption is, is that a child is like their parent in meaningful ways, that they can not just do certain things as an administrator, but they actually can channel that the parent's personality, like the sort of person they are, not just what they would do. Does that make sense? And God wants that in his creation. He wants us to not just be sort of his viceroys, like his people who do stuff. He wants like his very character to be channeled into his creation. And so we are persons, like God is a person, and that's important, okay? Now, um, so that means that we do represent God in creation. It also means that therefore we have the essential characteristics to do that. What those are— Michael Bath and Mills are going to talk about next week. I don't know if you guys can get that monitor on, but that'd be awesome if you can. Um, so, so come to that on Saturday, March 12th, 9 to 12. I'll be there. It's going to be fantastic. Okay, secondly, this is what we're going to camp on today a little bit, but a subset of this is bearing the image, that is not just being in the image, but bearing the image, doing the image, entails taking godly dominion as embodied persons. If you remember the scripture reading last week, it says that, um, that God created male and female in His image, and then He tells us in three different spots in that chapter, in that section chapter one, that we're supposed to take dominion. That doesn't mean take domination. It means to lead creatively like God was doing in the first six days of creation, right? God is showing what it looks like to take dominion, and it's about flourishing, and life, and creation, and creativity. And then he says to us to take dominion, and it's supposed to be similar to how he does it. Does that make sense? It's work, but it's a good, beautiful, life-giving work. It's not a dominating, destroying, um, parasitic kind of work. Does that make sense? Now, In the early chapters of Genesis, there's there's at least these eight things, but there's a lot more. There's only so much time that we have in a given moment, right? And um, these are some of the things that stand out from the early chapters of Genesis, about what it looks like to bear the image in creation. One is work, second is fertility, be fruitful and multiply is the first commandment given after human beings are created. Right? Expansion. Human beings are supposed to go out to all of creation to bring God's dominion. Because we're embodied persons, we can't be everywhere at once, so there has to be kind of a pile of us, and we have to actually spread out and do it. Right? Which is why the Tower of Babel, later in Genesis, gets destroyed in God because God confuses languages in order to spread people out, because people didn't want to spread out. Right? They wanted to stay together and create idolatry rather than spread out and take dominion. And then complementary verses to version 4, 5, and 6 we'll do today. And then the character of all of these things is supposed to be righteousness and not wickedness. That is, to do it like God would do it rather than to destroy the things God created and to do it unlike how he would do it. And then lastly, that if we do these things, the, the goal ultimately is to bring dignity to creation. That is, to treat things the way they were meant to be treated so that they could be what they were meant to be as opposed to degradation, which is to treat things in a way that isn't the way they are meant to be treated, so they end up not being what they were meant to be. Does that make sense? Now, um, oops, I don't know how to work electronics. So we're we're gonna look at these four, or these three today. The first—and these are all specifically related to the creation of the man and woman in— Genesis 2. So this is getting a little controversial. Your blood pressure might rise. Just do like bilateral stimulation or something like that your counselor taught you, and you're going to be fine. Okay? So, um, but the important thing is here—remember, if I don't say something, I didn't say it. Okay? Don't assume that I mean to say things I didn't say. Just listen to what I actually say, and then we can argue about that. Okay? (laughs) All right. So the first is, the first is, is that part of taking dominion is accepting how God has created us in our being— so that as we bear our being in the world, we accept the world as it is, and we act out what we were created to be, right? And one of those things is God created human beings to be complementary, that is, to be made for each other and to work together with each other, rather than to be the perfect enemies of each other. Does that make sense? And you see that most perfectly in the creation of the woman in relationship to the man. So in creation, there's this place where Adam Adam is given a number of things to do, and he's doing—he's working his way through them, including naming all the animals, And it says that a suitable helper for the man isn't found, right? Now, God's pretty clear about this, and the man is beginning to realize this. And so it says in that that section that one of the things that God wants to do is he, he says it's not good for the man to be alone, right? But then it says is that he needs a helper that is suitable. Now, the, the word suitable there is only used three times in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's not the kind of word you'd think it would be. It's like a pictorial word. It kind of means like facing back at right? Um, and so th- the image is that like when Adam looks out, there's nothing facing back at him that's similar, right? Like he looks in the mirror, and there's like a horse and a dog and a bird. Like there's nothing really looking back at him that's like him. And so God is saying there isn't there isn't something look back at him that's like him. There's there's no—and that's what the word suitable means. And then helper means helper. It means someone who helps you, but the way the word ezer, that's the, the word, is used in the Old Testament, is that it's always like a critical helper. It's like one—if you don't have this helper, you're going to die. So um, one of the, the, um, the people who is called a helper in the Old Testament a number of times is God. God is called our helper, right? Because without his help, we wouldn't succeed right? There's another place where two of Israel's generals are splitting their armies to fight two different incoming incur- incursional armies. And the, the Joab, the one who's leading, turns to the other captain and says, listen, I'm going to fight there, and if I, if I'm winning, and I see you're being overpowered, I will come and be your azer. But if you see I'm being overpowered and you're winning, you come and be my Azair, right? The helper without which you can't succeed. You're failing without them, right? Adam—I mean, and Adam wasn't only failing to procreate without a helper suitable for him, which he would have, of course, done, but in all kinds of other ways, he would have failed in taking dominion. So there's two reasons why God gives. One is, is that it's not good for the man to be alone. But one of the reasons it's not good for man to be alone is because he's meant to be a social creature. But it's also because God told the man to take dominion, and he just can't without the woman, not just because he can't make more humans without the woman, but because he can't take dominion holistically without the human, without the other human that is the woman. Both are dominion takers together, and God makes them to be complementary in that dominion taking. Now, the problem with that is, is that your perfect helper your perfect ally is also your perfect enemy. Okay? I mean, nothing can make a man's life better than the right woman, and nothing can make a man's life so miserable as the right woman. Right? And and the reverse is true. Nothing can make a woman's life, like, humanly speaking, connectionally as great as the right man, and nothing can make a woman's life as miserable in this life as the right man right? The, the thing that makes us suitable to each other, the thing that makes us, the, the man, the soter, that is the one who cares for and saves, in the Ephesians 5 sense, his wife, and the Ezra, the one who saves the man by being the perfect helper, that interrelation is necessarily comprehensive and profound. Either she will be his perfect helper, or she will be his demise. Either he will be her perfect husband, or tyrannical lord. And there's not a lot of good in between, right? So when the curse comes, when, the, when sin happens in chapter 3, and God is cursing the man and the woman, he says to them, he sa- says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Now that can mean at least three things, and I don't want to take the time to go over all of them. It could mean um, that uh, you're just going to really, really want him, and he's going to rule over you. And it's going to be great, right? That's probably not what it means. Um, not just because you don't like it, um, but because it's a curse, okay? And so he's not saying, it's going to be fine. You're just going to super love him, and he's going to rule over you. It's, no, it's like, whatever that verse means, it is holistic bad news. The only good news in the curse is the point where it says, to the, he says to the woman, you will have an offspring, right? And he will crush the head of the serpent, right? Actually, he's talking to the serpent there, I think, right? So anyway. The point is, it doesn't mean that. So then what does it mean? does it mean that the woman is going to desire to have her husband, meaning control him, but the husband is going to like honorably take charge and do what needs to happen so that the woman is not aligned, right? That's probably not it either, right? There is a strain within complementary evangelicalism that believes that. That believes that the woman sinned by being deceived, and then Adam, having seen that she had fallen into sin, didn't want to be without her, and sort of took it for the team and ate the fruit, So he could be with her and whatever was going to happen next. (laughs) I know that's not— laughter isn't an argument, but I— man, I don't— I do not think that's right. Um, Partly because I've lived with myself for all these years. um, And listen, I am the first guy— it makes me sick to my stomach when we pretend good behavior is female behavior. Okay, like I think that's the dumbest thing, but like The opposite is also equally dumb, right? Like that good behavior is like male behavior. That's equally dumb. Like human behavior is male and female, and it's different. And that's why we are either the perfect complement to each other, because we can accept each other, or we're like the the perfect antagonist to each other, because we can't, because they're different, right? So um, in Genesis 4, when Cain is getting ready to kill his brother, because his less than good sacrifices are not being accepted by God, and Abel's are, and he hates his brother, and he's murdered God, and God says, listen, sin, which is in the singular feminine, crouches at your door and wants to, and desires you, right? But you have to rule over it. You see the dynamic here? He's saying the word crouch is not used very many times in the Bible, but it's used as for crouching lions and, and crouching donkeys. There's this place, It's a car. it's called a crouching donkey among the sheep, right? There's all these sheep, and there's this dog, you'd be like, I'm just a sheep, guys, I promise. <laughs> I'm like a crouching, right? I don't think, it's probably the lion metaphor, like a crouching lion looking to jump on something to devour and kill it, right? And, he's, and so he's saying sin is like this, this like lion, like crouching and jump on you and rip your throat out, right? But you have to like beat it to death, and like this is a, this is a conflict. Now, because of the context there, the forceful overpowering is a positive metaphor because you have to kill sin because sin is a negative thing. The woman is not sin, right? The woman's a human being, and she's trying, she, her desire, she desires her husband, meaning desires to get control of him, and he's going to rule over her, right? So it's sort of like, it, so it's basically feminine wiles against masculine brutality. He's like, this is what it's going to devolve into, right? Neither of you are going to accept what you're really called to do, loving each other in your differential complementarity. You're different from each other. You're you're the perfect match for each other. You're meant to take dominion in unity and harmony and in the dynamic that I've created. But instead, what's going to happen is because— now because you've chosen to sin and you've got the wrong kind of knowledge of good and evil, what's going to happen is you, the woman, you're going to like— You're going to needle and pick, and you're going to use all your feminine wiles and all the ways you know you have power, even though you pretend you don't, to control your husband, either so he doesn't know it, or you'll just wear him down until he doesn't want to fight you anymore. Right? Until you have control. And then you'll control all the stuff you want to control. And he is going to stonewall you and yell and maybe hit you, or do whatever he can in his power, or pull the money out of your bank account, or leave you high and dry, or go have an affair just to show you your place, or some brutal, nasty thing. Right? And that's how you guys are going to behave towards each other because I made you to be the perfect complement. But if you don't listen, if you don't come to faith, if you don't find redemption, if you don't get back on the path of your original, the original purpose of your bearing of the image, you will be the perfect enemy for each other. Both personally, in your marriage or any relationship between men and women, closely, but also, but also corporately and culturally right? All right, I need to keep moving on here. The second is um, autonomy, authority versus autonomy and tyranny. Um, I talk about some of this stuff in episode 128 of the podcast on what complementarianism is, six different ways of looking at the relationship between men and women, the ones that are Christians, the ones that are not Christian, and the range of ways men and women can relate to each other, because there's a lot of room for individuality and for different men and women to work out how we embody complementarity with each other. There's not like a a simple like, here, wear this tie. It's not that tight, right? Um, One, one writer, I think it was Gary Friesen, who wrote on the, on the, the will of God. Sometimes people think the will of God is like this like, um, like red piece of yarn, and then your life is like a blue piece of yarn, and you got to keep the blue on the red. And if you keep the blue on the red, you're in God's will, and everything's gonna go fantastic, which of course isn't true. Um, But but just that metaphor of like, okay, what happens if you get off it? What if there's blue and red going in different directions? Can I ever get back on it? What's gonna happen? No. The The will of God is just not like that. The revealed will of God is basically like this. He's leading the sheep, and he's like, you see all that grass? Big pasture. Just go eat over there, wherever you want, but just don't go off that cliff, and don't go into that forest and I'll watch over you, right? That, the will of God is, this, like, is like a pasture. It's not like a line. And so when a man and a woman come together, or when people come together in complementarity and they're trying to work together, right? It's not like you have to do it exactly one way. If, if you took a hundred Christian couples who were really embodying a redeemed complementarity in their relationships, their families, and their homes, and you looked at exactly how the man and the woman worked together, what does it really look like? Right? You would get a hundred different answers. But they would all be in the pasture, not over the cliff or in the woods with wolves. Do you understand? Okay. Now, relative to dominion um, versus authority and corruption, one of the things that has been debated in in Christian faith a good bit, especially in the post-feminist era, is, is the concept of male headship in the Bible wrong? Was it just the traditions of men that got in the Bible? Or B, was it after the fall? At, like when, when it said that um, your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Did did male headship start after the fall, or is it a pre-fall ordinance? Did God create the relationship between men and women such that, at least in marriage, and then we find out in the New Testament later, in the church, there is a distinct responsibility and therefore authority that men hold that women do not, right? That there's actually a structure, not just a broad egalitarianism. Does that make sense? No. Many people think that it could go either way, and there are many Christians who believe scripture is God's word, who believe that the distinction between men and women is either put away in Christ or never existed in the first place. It was a result of the fall, okay? And I think those people are Christians, right? I think they are wrong. I think that it is meant to be very clear to us that in creation, before the fall, there is a distinction of responsibility and its corresponding authority that God gives to the human male, in at least marriage and in the church. Now, I think now some people say, "Well, if that's true, then like, shouldn't that be true of like Fortune 500 companies and pr- the presidency and all that kind of stuff, and like being a general?" Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bracket out general because I actually think there are some male-female distinctions relative to um, martial realities, like military bloodshed, that kind of stuff. I actually actually do think. There should be a gender distinction there, and I think the Bible teaches that. But, but in all these others, the, the, the church is modeled scripturally, institutionally after the family. The, the church is, in an extension. It is the family of God, the body of Christ, and it functions in the same way as the family. The family functions on the basis of natural affection—that is, it's voluntary and natural— and it has a certain structured authority of the husband and the wife and the parents and the children, right? That is a different way of functioning than the function of exchange in dynamics and institutions in which it is not built on natural affection and family, like business, university, and so on. In those areas of human life, there isn't any clarity in the Bible, any statement one way or another as to how gender roles ought to work out. Does that make sense? And so even if you take the most conservative view of what Scripture explicitly says, it would say that there is a distinction in authority and responsibility in the family and in the church. And in the church, it does not say that women are supposed to submit to men generally. That's not what it says. Submission in the church is to elders, that is our pastors and leaders, <clears throat> right? And if—and I think Scripture teaches that those elders—and I'm not going to get into this in this sermon—are supposed to be men, okay? But it doesn't mean—and my wife was talking to me about this, this morning. She was kind of hot about it. She's like, listen, there's some churches that seem to think that every woman is supposed to submit to every man, and that is baloney. And I was like, yes, darling, I agree. Um, but <laughs> it sounds like you want me to make that clear to the church, right? Um, so um, the way this functions in creation is, is that um, God creates the man first— And has the man do a number of things in taking dominion and responsibility before the woman is created. I'm going to get to that in just a second. But the dynamic and structure is such that um, when that begins to come apart, there are multiple ways in which people just don't work together very well. And so what's supposed to happen in creation is not just that there's structured authority between the man and the woman. And let me be very clear about this. The reason there's structured authority between the man and the woman is because there's more structured authority beyond that. It goes God— Man, woman, creation. Right, and notice what what happens in the fall. It goes creation, woman, man, God, and God is the only one who goes. Nope, I'm not going along with this. Right, the snake. Why? Why is why is Satan a snake? Right, it's creation. It's the lowest part of creation. Creation, lowest part of creation, comes and tells the woman what to do, and she says, "Okay." And then the man goes along with it. It's the utter reversal of the authority. The woman had—the first person to not use their authority in Genesis 3 is not the man. It's the woman. The woman is a dominion taker over all of creation. She is its queen, the divine viceroy over all things. She has no business listening to a snake, right? And so What ends up happening is that there's three possibilities. One is you can say, well, there's no, there's no, um, there's the mutual calling between us means that there's no distinction between us. There's no authority and responsibility that's special between the man and the woman. So we're just going to be mutual, right? Both what I think happens in scripture and what I experience in marriage counseling and so forth is is that that tends to lead to chaos. You you can't just decide every minute, every time who's going to do what. Like, you just, you don't want to decide every day who's going to take out the trash. Who's going to, who's going to make that better? Who's going to do this thing? Right? There's a, there's an ordering that tends to happen, and if you try to keep working it out, what happens is you start, end up fighting about it, and then you're like, well, who has authority? Who's going to tell me what's doing? how's it? People are the sorts of people or creatures that need some kind of structure, but you can't really have structure without somebody being responsible. But you can't give anybody responsibility without giving them the attending authority that they need to have that responsibility. Which is why the man and the woman are supposed to recognize that there is structured authority, but there is simultaneously mutual calling, and that there's love and affection between the two. You take away any of those three things, and you've got, a, you've got problems. Okay, do not hear me say that if you deny the first, everything goes awry, but everything else is fine. If you get rid of the, the, the structure of authority, that's a problem. But listen, if you keep the structure of authority, but you get rid of the mutual calling, if you don't look at the men around you or the women around you and see yourselves as bound together in a mutual calling with each other as equals, if you lose that, then what happens is it it will corrupt the structured authority. Right? Because you're not looking at the steward, your fellow stewards as fellow stewards. Or if if that affection is lost within the the home, if, if a man and a woman agree that there is male headship in the home, but you lose the sense of mutual calling, or just the mutual affection, right? There are ways that you would never treat somebody that you had right authority with if you had affection for them. There's all kinds of things I can tell people. Like, I have authority in in multiple different places in my life. There's tons of things I would never ask people to do that I have authority over that I probably could. Because I think of them as having a mutual calling with me and the same dignity as myself, and I have affection for them. I care about them as people. And that, of course, is par excellence for my wife. Right? But when this breaks down, all three of these break down, our mutuality breaks down into chaos, or we say, I don't need you and you don't need me. Like, I'm by myself, I can just define myself and do whatever I want. That tends to lead to anarchy, which is a breakdown of the structure of creation, or if—or what is predicted in Genesis 3, God's saying each of you are going to be grasping for power. And what you're going to have is somebody's going to win, but the person who wins is going to be a tyrant, by definition, because of how they got the power. And what you're going to get is one of these three, or two of these three, or all three of these three, or a bunch that I didn't even include. Right? Now, some people have said to me, Nick, how dare you? There's no real evidence in Genesis 2 or 3 that there's any difference between the man and the woman in terms of their responsibility or authority. And I would argue that is false. Here's at least eight. Okay, it's not just one. It's not like, well, it's just creation order or something. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of them. I mean, I, I, was, I was talking to somebody just this week, and um, I, I was going through something. I was like, I was like Does it, it, was a, it was a woman. I was like, is, is this compelling to you? Is this co-? and, and, and one of her responses was, I thought the woman was there for most of that stuff. And I was like, no, she's created at the very end. She is—after all this stuff is realized, it becomes increasingly evident that she is needed. And so then she is the crowning creation to make all of this work, so that the man isn't left alone with all of that, which would be horrible. It would be not good in the creation that God had just declared very good. And so in the order of creation, in the assignment of work, in the naming of the creatures, The designation of the woman is helper. Like people have said, listen, the word helper is used for God. Yes, but the definition, what the word means is helper. That is, another person has a job, and you are helping them do that job they are responsible for. That's what the word means. You can't reduce it because the word is dignified, because the word is used of God himself. It just means that God is a super dignified helper. When David says, the Lord is my helper, he doesn't, he's not saying, so I'm not responsible for the things I'm trying to do that I'm failing in without him. He's saying, no, I'm responsible to be king. I'm supposed to be the king, but I would fail if God didn't help me. And he's my helper. He's stronger than me. He's better than me. But he's helping me. I still have this job, this responsibility, this authority. Does that make sense? So the, so the, the use of that word throughout scripture and what it means is profoundly dignified. But this gets back to our unwillingness to make distinctions in the modern world because we want to be advocates for the political views that we have and the social views that we have. The word is, uh, is utterly dignified. The position of his heir is utterly dignified. The word means helper. Right? And so on. The woman is taken out of the man. That's disputable because you could say that that was a metaphor of equality rather than her derivation from him, that it means that she's taken out of his side that is to demonstrate their equality. However, in 1 Corinthians, Paul uses that to demonstrate that the, that the woman was taken from the man demonstrates the man's primacy, and then he says, but every man has come from a woman, which demonstrates her necessity, and so between man and woman, we are equally bound to each other in mutuality, right? And then the emphasis on the curse, that the man should not have listened to the voice of his wife. That is, not don't listen to that woman. It was like, no, your job was to say, I'm supposed to use my authority and say no to this, right? And then there's also, and this is out of order, but the man is given the commandments about the tree. So when the, when the, wife, when the, when the wife, Eve, get, says to the serpent what the command was, she's reporting from the man as far as we know. Because when that, when that command is given about the trees, it's given to the man alone, right? And so because he received the command directly from God, the assumption in the narrative of the story is he's the one primarily responsible for it, right? And the authority is driven mostly from the responsibility. Like, Listen, guys. Um, It is true that you should never be given a responsibility without the authority to get it done, okay? What women primarily don't like about this teaching is how men often do not fully embrace their responsibility in relationship to the authority, right? Or they have lost the sense of profound mutuality and calling and love and affection, right? They don't feel like we are sometimes behaving in the stead of Christ, like it says in Ephesians, or Ephesians 5, that we are laying ourselves down for the church for her good, right? And they don't feel like the words out of our, mou- our mouth are consonant with the words of God, which they should be. If we are God's steward and we're acting as God would act in our place, then if we say something to our wife and we want them to go along with it, they want to, we want them to respect our authority in that way, that specifically, then what she wants to hear in our voice is the voice of God. That is, that we're saying what God would say to do, right? Which is the same reason that when my wife says, "Uh uh-uh, right? What I want to hear is not like a pissy, like whatever, stupid husband. What I want to hear when she says, "Uh uh-uh to me, is you're not speaking with the voice of God. Like what you're saying is not what the Lord would say. And so I have to take that role now because you're not taking it. And I need to tell you that what you're saying is wrong because you're misusing your authority, and you're sliding in a tyrant, and I'm, I'm here to help you, because I'm your Isaiah, you know? And if I'm humble enough, I would say, thank you, darling. <laughs> but listen, there's no way—there's no way to make this not hard, because God has made us so complementary and completely bound to each other that it's going to get intimate. You know, which leads us to the, the last thing, which is comprehensive versus constrained institutions. Um, there's a lot of ways I would, like, I would like to frame this. Let me try to do it this way. Um, in Iowa, long before the Obergefell decision about gay marriage, there was a judge who said, what marriage is, is the public designation of your romantic other, your person. There was a judge in California who said something similar. And then that became the national opinion, right? Now, you know, listen, I don't care about the civil law, okay? People should be able to make contracts. I'm fine with it. Whatever. Make, your, make whatever contracts and then live up to your word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But that is not what marriage is. <laughs> that is the worst definition of marriage I've ever heard. Like, literally. It's terrible. And one of the reasons why Christians objected to it was not because they didn't want, like, gay people to have the right to make union vows. is because that's not what marriage is. Marriage is a comprehensive union. That is, it is a union in which everything is given in exchange for everything. Everything. Is that just your romantic other? It is, it is inherently revelatory because it demonstrates it images God between the interplay of the man and the woman. It also demonstrates the relation between Christ and his church, or God and his people. So it's divinely revelatory. It is um, permanent. You don't just—you can't—you're not—you're not, you're not allowed to just be married for 20 years, and then just not sign up for another 20. It's diachronic through all the stages of life, because men and women give into marriage unequally over the course of their life. And only if you're both together through the whole have you both given in your all. Right? The same is true. It's invaluable. You can't offend it. It's exclusive. You can't share it. It's sacrificial. You're gonna die doing it. It's durable. It's, it stays and it lasts and you don't let it come apart. You're responsible to it. It's supposed to be great. And it's expansive. You're like you're having children or you're moving out, you're increasing your life, you're growing up in maturity, you're but it's expansive, right? It's inherently all of those things. You can't take away any of them, right? And then functioning, it's certain things by its nature. It's all you're supposed to leave your parents. Now you're like, like, of course, you leave your parents, okay? That's less obvious now for some of us living in basements. But in the text, what, it, what that points to is this idea that, like, you leave all your other options for taking care of yourself, right? You leave the safety of the life you had before, and you go out into the adventurous unknown with this other person. Right? It's also industrious. You're supposed to work and take care of each other. It's hospitable. You're creating a place or a nest where other people can be welcomed out of the cold of life into a place of hospitality and love. That's what you're creating together. It's necessary and social. Right? It is official or public. You are married. Right? I don't particularly like wedding rings, but I mean, they're kind of a clunky symbol, but they're at least a recognized one. And what we say in the wedding ceremony is this demonstrates to others your exclusive commitment to your beloved rather than somebody to hit on because they're probably unhappy, right? It's civic because it's part of our laws and life together. And th- the, the state doesn't have certain responsibilities to the people in my household because we have those responsibilities. The state has no right to raise my children, has no right to tell them what to think or what to be or how to be like, or it's, the state's not supposed to have to take care of my wife. I'm supposed to take care of my wife, right? So it's civic by nature, right? That's why scripture says actually that like, If somebody is sick or needs money, their family should be looked to first before the church helps them, because their immediate family should take care of it. If they then can't, they have nobody, then the church should take care of it, right? And it's intergenerational. You're not just doing it for you and your happiness. The idea is that you're going to have children, and they're going to have children, and they're going to have children's children with children's children. There's going to be 15 generations beyond you It's going to matter, relative to what you do in this relationship. You're going to pass down all your psychological problems. You're going to pass down a little bit of money. You're going to pass down whatever, all your successes and your beliefs and your understandings, all the things you learned about the world, your spirituality and your walk with God is something you're going to show your kids and some of that's going to get to the next generation too. Right? You're not doing one thing. It's not for like how, like they're not a starter wife or husband, right? This is, you you, you should be thinking 150 or 250 years. And it's religious by nature. You make your vows to each other, but you make them before God. What God has joined together, our Lord said, let man not put us under. And it's in that comprehensive context that hopefully we can then receive some of the benefits of the shared pursuit of godliness, the enjoyment of romantic love, actually being happy, caring for each other, knowing each other, like being really known, right? Comforting each other, experiencing the fulfillment that can come from that relationship and the joy of fertility, because having kids is supposed to be not terrible. (laughs) And the thing is, is like you, you're not allowed to just go through and pick what you want. Right? You can't be like, well, I'll take exclusive, at least for now. Like as long as it lasts, it's exclusive. Right? And then enjoyable and expansive. I like expansive. I like that. Right? And then under benefits— I like romantic, happy, care, known, comforting, fulfilling, not so much with the kids, not so much with the God stuff, but, and all that mill stuff, ugh, right? Maybe industrious or leave your parents if he's really clingy. But like, for the most part, I just want what I want, right? And it's like, no, that's not how it works. That's not what it is. You could call something that isn't all of this marriage, but it isn't marriage, right? And it's okay. Like, you you could split up the words if you want. Like, we can, we can, like, publicly, we can say this kind of marriage or that kind of marriage. Like we're going to have polygamous marriage here pretty quick. It's not going to be long. We're going to have polyamorous marriage like in 20 minutes, okay? Just get ready. Put your boots on, okay? But what you have to know as a Christian is what marriage is. This is what marriage is, right? And so the union is comprehensive, not constrained. You can't artificially limit it on the basis of your autonomy and what you want. One of the things to notice in Scripture is that um, God doesn't actually institute marriage. He just watches it institute itself. Do you notice that? God makes the man do all these things. He has all this responsibility and authority in creation, right? And he gets the end of it, and there's no one facing him. There's no one that looks like him. There's, there's no one to look him in the eye, to be his companion, to know him. There's, there's no complementarity, and so he creates the woman out of the man. And the minute he sees her, he bursts in a song, the first song of the Bible, unless you think the creation story is a song. And he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? And then it says, for this reason. (laughs) Like, there's something in before the fall, before we were selfish, before we were tyrannical, before we were whatever we became, when he just saw her and recognized what she was, the recognition itself created this comprehensive institution. What else could there be? When he embraced the woman for the first time, he wasn't just, like, wanting to have sex. He embraced her in this way. Everything. It was everything. Right? And, and that's true of life in lots of other ways, too. Marriage is maybe the preeminent example. It's the first institution. But there's all kinds of other relations that we have that are comprehensive in their nature, where we owe people more than we wish we did. Like friendship, for example. I, I cannot tell you how many instrumental friendships I watch happening around me, where people like, they have relationships with somebody for some reason, and then the minute that reason's over, they're done with that person. People are coming up and down in their text message frequencies based on who they're, who's, who they're up on or who they're, who they're, like, they're connecting with or like, vibing with right now or whatever. It's the dumbest thing in the world. That's not friendship. That's consumption. You're eating the other person. Right? Friendship is comprehensive. You receive person as a whole person. You take them as they are. All of it. Right? And you receive them long term as permanently as possible. And the more you do that, the more dignifying rather than degrading the relationship is. And you felt degraded by people who seemed to really want to be your friend and be close, and then the next minute they were hot and then they were cold. It's because friendship is a comprehensive relationship. Work is, in some ways, a comprehensive relationship. If it's healthy, if it's, if it's dignifying rather than degrading. Like, I care about the personal lives of the people who work at this church. And when they tell me their personal lives aren't going well, I do things to try to make sure they are. Not because I have a fiduciary responsibility to do it. Even if there aren't labor laws telling me what I can and can't do. I mean, it's the point of labor laws, right? It's to say, hey, you guys, we can't just treat people like all they are is the financial exchange. You can do anything you want them. Like, I don't like some of the labor laws. I think they're overweening statism. But the idea that, like, people are more than just meat moving for you at this expense is right. And so there are lots of ways in which we're meant to be comprehensive. Okay, so let me, let me end with this. When you start to look at what it means to— Be in the image of God or bear the image of God? There's a couple responses that you can have to it, right? Because it's pretty dizzying and terrifying. It's pretty complicated and comprehensive and all that, right? And people get afraid. They get discouraged. And um, one person said to me this week, you know, if you preach this wrong, you know, the good Midwesterners are just going to like come up with another thing they have to do and then try to do it. And then when they don't do it, they're going to get angry and like upset. And then they're going to get discouraged and ultimately quit. it's a pretty high standard. It's to be God's presence in the creation. It's to take his dominion over all things. That's what you're here for. And so you can see the complexity of that, and you can easily just be terrified by it, right? It's terrifying. Like how—and it can make you really anxious. Like, I don't want my life to mean that much. That's too much, right? Or you can see them, like it says in Ephesians 3, the most multifaceted glory of God. That all the way these things work together, as you work through it, it's like— more and more and more and more wonder. And similarly, all the responsibility that's bound into it, you can either get angry about it. Like, how can I bear all this responsibility? How can I do all of this? Like, I'm never going to have any fun. Right? It's a lot of responsibility to be a human being. And yet, it's also a lot of purpose. It's funny how people both get angry about this, and they also say they want more meaning in their lives. Right? We live in a kind of meaning crisis right now, and yet at the same time, you give somebody something to do, a purpose, and they get angry that you want something from them. Well, why should I have to do that? Maybe I just want to paint. Right? Listen, painting is dignified work. If you're going to do it, do it right. Make it beautiful. Make it ennobling. You, you know, listen, if you want to paint, paint. But do, put your hand to something. Because in it is your purpose. God has given you a purpose. Quit being angry about it. There's no sense in being angry. You're just wasting your life. Okay, now let me— End with three things. Men, women, single people. Men. You don't like this, and you know you're not allowed to say it out loud because you're supposedly in the good position, right? And um, whatever, okay? And, but I know, that, I know that this is still anxiety-inducing and ang- angry because the concern is we're going to work our whole lives, give all of our money to people who are ultimately going to say they dislike us or going to divorce us or leave us for somebody else because we're not feminine enough for them. And... Uh, we're going to get consumed and used up, and then spit upon, and then vilified. And if women don't need men any more than a fish needs a bicycle, it's also true that men don't need women any more than a fish needs a filet knife. Like, it cuts both ways, right? Here's the thing, listen. It's okay. Like, we're the sons of the ever-giving, creating, dominion-taking, working God. We are the sons of the one who laid down his life for his adulterous church and disobedient children who in the end will have a spotless bride who will appreciate all he's ever done for her and children who will call him blessed. The very same servant of the Lord who was cut off from his offspring will be raised from the dead and he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And it says in the very next chapter, the fruit of his infertility will be more children than the woman who's had her own children.
0: Amen. Right?
1: So don't, don't fear. Don't give in to fear, men. Women, um, I know that this sounds, some of the stuff you're just like, nah. there's gotta be a loophole. This has gotta be wrong. You are a jerk. It's interesting how in First Peter, the apostle says about Sarah, If you can be like her, it means not giving in to fear. Like, there's a lot of fear that there is a feminine kind of slavery, but that, like, the man will be used up in his work unappreciatively, that the woman will be relegated to a kind of work she might not choose. And in it, I think as much as anything, to lose her individuality that there's like a cookie cutter thing put on Christian women in particular, or women in general if they accept creation, that like makes them all the same. They're domestic, they have children, they support their husbands, whatever. And in first Peter, I'm not going to read it because there's some complicating verses in it that I don't have time to expound, but the apostle says to women, he says, don't, don't adorn yourself with the beauty of looks, right? He's like, he says, instead, and, and, and we get offended at this, he says, but in a, like a, he says, a submissive and quiet spirit. He says, adorn yourself with that. And that's kind of offensive because you're like, wait, does that mean shut up and don't talk because you're a woman? I don't think so. I think what it means is, is that there's a kind of grabbing of attention that can come in the beauty of youthful femininity in which we try to make something of ourselves and our personality by saying, look at me, I'm beautiful. Look at me, I'm loud. Look at me, I'm— And I think what— Peter's saying is, he said, no, there was a way in which the great women of old knew who they were. And part of that was they were a woman. Part of that was their femininity. Part of it was embracing it. But they didn't lose their individuality in it. They found who they were in the midst of what they were. And there was a quietness to their spirit and a submissiveness to it even. But they found it in courage in not giving way to fear rather than in being so afraid that they became so anxiety-filled that they had to grab for attention by a boisterousness or a beauty flaunting that really wasn't honestly who they were. And that there there is an individuality that you can find in your femininity as a Christian woman that is not cookie-cutter, that is as different as there are women in this room and in this world, fully fulfilling your gift as dominion-takers in the world. You are the daughters of Sarah. You are the bride of Christ embodied. You are all of us displayed revelatorily to the world in submission to Christ. Right? And lastly, as single people. I'm sorry, I'm kind of way over time here. But um, there, there are three ways in which, at least, the Apostle Paul said, singleness isn't normative, and it's also simultaneously better. I mean, one of the things that we have to come to grips with as Christians is that God says it's not good for human beings to be alone. And his main cure for it is marriage. And that marriage is therefore normative. The vast majority of us are called to pursue and find a suitable person and to marry them, to provide companionship for that other person so that they might not have to be single any longer and for us to enjoy marriage in the comprehensive unity that it is. And in Christianity, also teaches— that in certain key and critical and helpful and important ways, singleness is better. It teaches both of those things. It teaches that marriage is better, and it teaches that singleness is better. And you might think that the Bible, therefore, doesn't understand what better means. <laughs> but they're better in different ways. And so if you go back to that list of eight things, there's, there are single ways to do all of those things. Right? There are ways in which you can focus—, focus in, Focus on your career is such a stupid way to say it, but many of the jobs that you do, if you spent 85 hours a week doing them, you could take it farther than you could if you had other obligations. Like, I could do more as a pastor. I could take things further. I could do theology. I just don't have time to do it, and it would help the whole church. And I can't do it right now at this point in my life, before at least I'm an empty nester, because I have other responsibilities. My, My responsibilities are variegated. They're different. And therefore, I can't hyperfocus. Well, single people have no such problem. They can find something to hyperfocus on and take it further than anything else because they don't have varying responsibilities. It's a gift, right? It also demonstrates that marriage isn't perfect. In theory, being married would always draw you closer to God. In reality, to the extent to which your spouse isn't perfectly aligned with the Lord, it divides you, and that's common and normal in being single and accepting it and glorying in it, is partly the recognition of that. Half or more of the people who are married are caught between their spouse and God. And Paul says, you can be undivided in heart towards the Lord. And remember that you are the sons and daughters of spiritual, of a spiritual child maker. Right? The, the concept in the New Testament of being a child of God is not that you are a child of God because you were born as a human being. You're an image bearer. But sonship and daughtership in the New Testament is spiritual. You have to be born again into it. And so the fathers and mothers of the New Testament church are those who spiritually father and mother those who are finding Christ and becoming his bride. And that's why Jesus the Christ had no physical children, had no spouse to marry, had no comfort in that way, and accepted that it was not good for man to be alone, but was alone because he had a hyper focus on one thing, so that he would fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 54, that the tent would have to be enlarged of all of the children of the single one. God has given us in the Spirit the capacity for an eternal fertility, single or married, beyond which we could ever imagine. And having a spouse and having the comfort of a spouse or any of those things is unrelated to the profound, fundamental, and eternal promise of the spiritual fertility, the work, the dignity, the righteousness that you have in you because of Christ, and that you can unleash in an expansive way in the world, among all people, to be their fathers and mothers, sisters and brothers, like Jesus the Christ himself. I can look to Adam and Abraham as my marriage mentoring forefather, and you must only look to Jesus as yours. Let's pray. Okay, that was a lot. Lord, I pray that the stuff that is bad, you would help people forget, and that you'd really bring home by your spirit the things that can really help us understand what it means to bear your image in the world. I pray that you would help us to see and know you in an incredibly deep and meaningful way. To not given to fear and anger and anxiety, when we see the complexity of how you've made us, but that we would—we would see its beauty, we would revel in its glory, that it would lift us up emotionally, and that we would know that Jesus died for all the ways that we fail. He performed humanity perfectly on our behalf, and that we just need to walk with you in faith, and to do the next thing—to do the good work that you've put before us, that you've created us to do, like it says in Ephesians 2. Help us to, in grace, pursue what we were meant to be, and in so doing, find purpose and glory and happiness and goodness and dignity. And help us to be agents in which the wickedness and the degradation that comes from rejecting your creative purpose operates in the world. In Jesus' name.